9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Our wonderful panel today comes to us from a variety of locations. Of course, in Washington, D.C., from the American Enterprise Institute, we have Dr. Corey Shockey. How are you doing, Corey? I'm exceedingly well. Thank you, David. And not too far from there, we have diplomatic correspondent, the New York Times, uh, first time on the podcast, but a permanent occupant of a big place in our heart, Lara Jakes. How are you doing, Lara? I'm great, and I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me, David. We are very happy to have you there and far, far away at an undisclosed location. Uh, but if you go to our website, we'll give you exactly where she is. Uh, in rural Wyoming, we have of, from Georgetown University, Rosa Brooks. How are you, Rosa? Hi, David. It's snowing here in Wyoming. Brutal. Absolutely. Absolutely brutal. If it snowed here, I would crawl under my desk and that would be the last anyone would hear of me because I'm done with it. It's the middle of April. Um, you know, for the past few weeks, as we've been doing this uh, podcast, you know, Mondays, we're always trying to deal with foreign policy and national security. And it's kind of been slow. And then the past week, there's stuff happening every day. Um, and uh, it's, uh, you know, that's what you have now a very busy beat there, Lara. But uh, uh, I'm going to, I've got about half a dozen things I want to touch upon. I'd like to touch upon the juxtaposition of two of them from last week to start out with and just sort of get your takes on the relative significance of all of that. Uh, we had the uh, uh, Office of the Director of National Intelligence on Wednesday put out their annual threat assessment document. And then, or, or I guess it was Tuesday, and then on Wednesday and Thursday, they did testimony in front of the Senate and the House. Uh, the leaders of the intelligence community did on the threat assessment. And I can boil it down in a lot of ways, but essentially the threat assessment went China cyber and everything else. I mean, it was kind of like China's the country we've got to think about. Uh, Non-traditional forms of conflict are the kind of things we got to think about. Um, and yeah, there's some other countries it, it, you know, it really struck me as very different from a lot of the ones we've gotten over the past 20 years, um, uh, notably in part because um, a, a lot of our past preoccupation uh, with the Middle East or the greater Middle East, including uh, Afghanistan, was turned down. At the same time, the president of the United States announced that uh, the U.S. would be pulling its last troops out of Afghanistan by uh, September 11th of this year, which will be the 20th anniversary of uh, the 9-11 attacks, um, uh, which would bring to an end our longest uh, conflict of this sort. Uh, and it seemed like a big turning of the page. It seemed like the post 9-11 era was over. We are now moving on to a new era. Um, 
and I just, that was my takeaway, but you guys may have had different takeaways. Let's start with you, Lara. Well, I do think that we saw the continuation of the great powers conflict that we heard about very early on in the Trump administration. And in fact, I believe the Obama administration was trying to go there in late 2016. Uh, Russia, China, the threats that both of those great powers posed to the United States, not new information, but maybe more in-depth information and certainly more robust criticism of Russia than we had seen um, of the Trump administration. The intelligence agencies were given wide latitude to be very open about what they had found in terms of threats, whether it was solar winds for the first time. Um, you know, we heard about the, the hacking um, of the American uh, government agencies by solar winds. Um, we heard that uh, Russia is a, a, a major threat and that Putin, uh, we have the president now calling President Putin a killer. Um, so I believe that these are things that we had known about, but we are getting far more in-depth detail about why they are threats. And that's something that this administration has been trying to do, not just saying, here's what the situation is, but here's why it matters to the American people. Here's why people should pay attention to this. And here's how it's going to impact your life. We can talk a little bit more in detail about um, Afghanistan, as, but given that the, that was the story of a day or two later, I'm not sure you want to pivot off of the threat assessment just yet. Okay. Well, see, that's a sign that Lara was always a better editor than I was. Um, Corey, what's your take on this? So the thing I found most interesting in the threat assessment and the testimonies uh, was the acknowledgement that the terrorist threat has migrated from the Middle East and Central Asia to Africa and North Africa in particular. That is, they didn't say, hey, this problem's solved. We defeated ISIS in Syria and Iraq, and therefore we defeated ISIS. What they said was, well, we have had so much resource, so many resources and so much attention in the Middle East and Central Asia, the terrorism threat has been metastasizing in other places. Um, and uh, I do give them credit for the coordination of the message that uh, Afghanistan is not a major terrorist threat, uh, that is, and it would be difficult to reconstitute um, Afghanistan as a safe haven for threats. I think that latter part is a little dodgier and they softballed it, which suggests to me it was an underhand over the plate pitch to preface the Afghanistan withdrawal rather than um, a judgment uh, freestanding. Rosa? You know, um two things that I would just add on to everything that, that Laura and Corey have already said. One is that I, it was obviously notable, speaking of terrorism, that the report emphasized the threat from right-wing extremist terrorism, uh, both outside the U.S. and, and inside the U.S., uh, and emphasized that increasingly there are, there are violent extremist or right-wing violent extremist organizations in the U.S. that are in contact with particularly European uh, right-wing violent extremist groups. Um, that's obviously, need needless to say, that's very, very different from the tone of the Trump administration. 
Uh, and of course, I'm sure it was influenced by the events of January 6th, but this threat was there, there to be seen for anyone who wanted to see it uh, prior to January 6th as well. Even Trump's Homeland Security Department, FBI, highlighted this. And, and I think that this is the first significant validation we've seen from the intelligence community uh, since Biden took office to say, this is not only it's, it's not only is it a threat in the US, but that we need to be thinking about it as a potentially global network as well. Um, I also actually disagree a little bit with Corey's assessment that the report was designed to kind of pave the way for the Afghanistan withdrawal announcement. True on terrorism, but not so not so clearly true on on the Taliban. I mean, the report was pretty blunt that if U.S. troops and allied troops withdraw from Afghanistan, that we will likely see further Taliban gains and uh, potential inability to to stop them or halt that by the Afghan government. And that's not actually very helpful to Biden. I mean, it's basically saying, yeah, you know what? Um, there may or may not be any future significant terrorist risk to the United States, but if we withdraw from Afghanistan, we're basically leaving it to the Taliban. Um, and, and I actually, I mean, while that, that obviously we can talk about that when we talk about Afghanistan more generally, but in terms of just what this says about the Biden administration and, and the intelligence community, um, I thought, wow, what a difference from the Trump administration. There's a willingness here to let the intelligence community come out and say things that are politically inconvenient for the Biden administration and not try to stifle that or censor that or say, well, they're a bunch of stupid idiots anyway, so we shouldn't listen to them. Uh, so to me, to me, it seemed as significant the areas in which that report seemed to diverge from the, the sort of narrow political interests of the Biden administration as anything else. Nice point, Rosa. I would just throw in here as well, when you listen to Secretary of State um, Tony Blinken talk about this, even just as recently as this past weekend, he has said, well, if the Taliban reneges on its agreement, if it does uh, try to roll back uh, constitutional rights and fume violence in Afghanistan, contrary to what all the agreements would have been or have been, um, then they risk running afoul of the international community. They risk being isolated by the international community. It's a theme that we've heard from people not, you know, who we, when they were in the Obama administration, we heard that as well. And so clearly they still believe that this is a deterrence. There are many, many people, it's, and I see Rosa, or, I'm sorry, Corey shaking her head. I mean, there are all sorts of people out there who think that this is a little pie in the sky, that this is a little too altruistic in its thinking, and that it in fact won't be a deterrence. Were you, were, did you just have a shoulder ache there, Corey, or were you shaking your head because you were agreeing? No, I agree. It's a ridiculous notion that the Taliban will be um, forestalled from taking over the country and reimposing its ideology by the disapproval of people who couldn't defeat them on the battlefield and gave up and went home. Yeah, although, Rosa, the converse of that is that the Taliban won't be forestalled by a group of people who were there for 20 years and therefore why um, stay? Because they're yes, not Yes, I agree. I agree. I absolutely agree with that. And um, I think that uh, the decision by Biden to withdraw troops is, is the right thing after 20 years, I, I think. But I think we need to be honest with ourselves about what implications that has for the Afghan people. Um, 
it's not going to make things better for them. That's for sure. Um, and it will probably make things worse. And, you know, that, that being said, I, you know, I, I still think it makes sense. Um, but, but I think we have to admit that. Yeah, no, we do. But I think the, the again, the, the flip side of that is if, if we haven't been able to make things better yes, with the investment precisely. of a trillion dollars and no, and tens this of is thousands the old, of this we is have old. made things better. We have not made things as much better as we wanted them to. But there is no, I think there's actually no question that Afghanistan is a better place now than it was in 2001 when it was 185th on the UN Human Development Index and controlled by the Taliban. Okay, good okay. point. Let, let yeah. me let me put it this way. We, the, in certain key areas, we haven't been able to make things irreversibly better. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, but, you know, Lara, one of the, you know, the things as I saw as this Afghan story broke, and it was actually leaked over the course of those couple of days during the, which this uh, ODNI report came out. But as this story broke, uh, there are a number of people saying, oh, this is a big reversal, or he's, but, you know, Biden is finally, you know, pushing back on the generals or whatever. And it seems to ignore the fact that it, had Joe Biden been left to his own devices in 2009, U.S. Afghan policy would have been really different from Obama administration Afghan policy. Yeah, that's true. I mean, remember in 2009, Joe Biden wanted to deal with the Afghan military issue by putting in special forces and having very select limited strikes and not having conventional forces lead the way in Afghanistan. But the difference between then and now is he is saying all forces will come out. Zero means zero. So he is lifting the possibility of leaving in not just a residual force that uh, the generals had also argued for in Iraq in 2011, but also taking away the counterterrorism troops, uh, these training troops that uh, many of the Afghan forces still need. Um, to, to develop their own capabilities. And I would also just add that, you know, one of the major problems that this administration faces in its foreign policy is a trust deficit throughout the world. Will the United States live up to its word? Will it keep its promises? Especially given that four years from now, there could be another or a different president or a different um, administration who could completely change course as Trump did in 2017. And so if, we are trying to prove that America's foreign policy is stable. There is some expectation that it will live up to its promises, that it will keep its word in places like Afghanistan. I, I was so struck by a story that my colleague, uh, TM Gibbons-Neff did out of Kabul over the weekend where he interviewed a woman who had been beaten by the Taliban, not 20 years ago, but last month, um, beaten for, for showing her face, beaten with sticks. and. You know, it just brings me back to that video we all saw in 2001 where the Taliban was beating a woman in her burqa and it just outraged the international community and we said never again. Um, and in fact, this is probably what is going to happen and in fact is already happening. What should we, what should we do about that, Corey? Um, it's, it's a good point. I, you know, I think the, the Biden administration in one respect would say, not with regard to the women's issue, but with regard to security threats, saying they're pulling out the troops does not mean they're without resources if if needs be and that those resources are in the neighborhood right so first of all um a a strike force uh stationed in kazakhstan that can uh, have persistent surveillance with drones and reach in to kill a terrorist 
is not protecting women being beaten with sticks by the Taliban. So there's nothing they're proposing to do that's going to fix that problem. And that's always been the um, fiction of American policy in Afghanistan, which is the gap between our stated uh, policy and our ambitions and the resources we are willing to affront to it. And I would point out that even in 2010, with 100,000 troops, the civilian surge, which is supposed to substitute for the, the withdrawal of our military, never occurred then. And I'm deeply skeptical it's going to occur now. And so that leaves, um, I'm sorry, one more thing, which is I hate this framing of Biden overrules the generals because Biden overruled the civilian and military leadership of the Department of Defense. Not it's not just the military that had those concerns, it's everybody in the defense establishment. Um, and uh, so don't airbrush the civilian leadership out of the equation. And the last thing is that where I think the Biden foreign policy is gonna have its biggest problems is the gap between its self-aggrandizing commitment to human rights and advancing human dignity and what it's actually willing to do. And to link back to the threat assessments, what America's major adversaries, in particular China and Russia, have been brilliant at in the last several years is playing the gap between what we pretend we're willing to do and what our actual risk tolerance is. Um, and I think you should expect to see that be the major fault line for foreign policy in the, in the Biden administration, because they're doing it again, as Lara pointed out. A, a really good point. And, and it, it requires some um, unpacking because on the one hand, the only way you're going to be able to do anything on these issues internationally is a, 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 in, in, the, in the context of this administration is multilaterally. And they do seem to be talking to other countries and trying to coordinate their responses. And that is, of course, a distinction between the policy of this administration and the prior one. Um, and in terms of some of the human rights issues that are involved, um, another distinction is, um, you know, a desire to sort of establish human rights here at home, um, uh, you know, and, and, and lead from example. Um, and that's, you know, important in a lot of contests, not the least of which is, you know, how, and this, again, this is sort of complicated, but how you deal with some of the, the foreign threats described in this report when those threats are in fact threats that require us to choose between say our right to privacy and and having a, a you know an open society versus a closed society so you know I'm, I'm sorry it's a bit of a muddle but I, I i'm struck by the fact that they are doing the things that they can do at home and abroad on human rights issues uh, they're just also not suggesting that the, the military is going to be what achieves that for us. Does that make sense, Rosa? I'm, it, was a it does. It, it does. And I, I, I was just thinking of um, former Defense Secretary Bob Gates's 
uh, quip that, you know, likable as Biden was, he was wrong about every major foreign policy issue for the last four decades. And that that was constantly quoted because it was it was quotable. I also think it was completely unfair. Uh, you know, I think in some ways history has vindicated some of Joe Biden's views that that Gates thought were wrong, completely wrongheaded. And, and on Afghanistan, I think it's one of them. I think, I, you know, I, I think if Biden has had his way 20 years ago, or even for that matter, back in 2008, 2009, um, we might be in a very different place in Afghanistan now. Um, it's not clear to me that anything would be worse for the Afghans, um, notwithstanding Corey's very fair comment that that we have done some good. You know, things things right now are better for the average Afghan than they were uh, on September 10th, 2001. Um, but but I, and I think that goes to the question that you were just raising, which is that we we over and over forget that the military is not the the only tool in the toolkit. Yes, I can't stand that oh. phrase. Can we say maybe tool in the tool shed? Whatever happened to the tool shed? Um, why do you have to have a toolkit? How about uh, a tool hanging on the wall behind you? Yeah, uh, okay, right. I've got these menacing tools right here. Um, but 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 you know, the the we 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 tend to frame things in terms of either we send in the troops or keep in the troops or we do nothing. And that's not the choice, you know, that that's a false choice. Um we have uh the ability to use economic tools from ranging from sanctions to economic investments and economic aid. We, can, we have humanitarian assistance that can be a tool. We can use diplomacy. Uh, we can work with allies. We can work with NGOs. There are all kinds of things that the US can do, has done, and should continue to do, and in some cases step up in, in Afghanistan to help the Afghan people that are, are not Let's just keep let's just keep uh, some number of U.S. troops there indefinitely. I also think, I mean, and Corey's quite right to say that this won't help the Afghan people in any direct way. But when it comes to U.S. counterterrorism issues, my understanding is that they're still negotiating with the Afghan government about precisely what type of advise and assist mission there might be. You know, would there be people who are based in Frankfurt, but who go to Afghanistan for, you know, six weeks at a time who are, you know, US military personnel? Would there be Afghan military personnel who work much of the time, six week stretches at a time outside of Afghanistan in conjunction with US military personnel and so on? So I don't think it's also, I also don't think it's a, we leave uh, troops there indefinitely um, or we take them all out and we never have anything to do with Afghanistan again, you know, even on the strictly military and particularly the counterterrorism side. Um, while I don't know quite what it is yet, I'm, I'm 100% sure that the U.S. is going to retain some rapid response capability in Afghanistan. I, you know, I would add, and I'm, you're going to be surprised where I go with this, that it, it it makes me think in some respect of the excellent book, Tangled Up in Blue by <laughs> Rosa Brooks, where we ask our police department to solve a lot of our social department, social problems in the United States when that's really not what they're- You've got the wrong book, David. Oh, I do? <laughs> um uh, I, I, because, because I, I, no, I don't think your book does, but I'm saying we in the country tend to put, give too many jobs to the police, some of which should not be handled by the police. 
And we do the same thing with the military. I mean, that was the book, not the police book. (laughs) Well, I mean, that was, I I think it was a problem in both books. Companion volumes. No, no, I'm saying that, you know, that that's the, this is the case in both books. We tend to think that guns have this magical power mm-hmm. and that we give the people with guns more jobs than they can solve with their guns. And whether it's domestically or internationally, and I'm, that's kind of what I was getting at. But having said that, um, what do you think the legacy is going to be, Lara? 20, this is over. You've spent a lot of time writing about, thinking about this time in Afghanistan. How's it going to look to history? Boy, I I am really reluctant to pull in, you know, out my crystal ball and, and say, you know, what the, the graveyard of emperors um, will look like. And well, you can you can say how does it look to you right now? I, I don't I don't think I don't think we know enough. I mean, I, I think that it is it's a very fragile place right now. We know that the Taliban is uh, has control over so much of the country. Um, we know that corruption is endemic. We know that there are a, there's a whole generation of young people and women who don't want to give up their rights. And, and this is something that is on the line and they fear very greatly that they will no longer have these rights. And, and if for an administration that says it cares deeply about democratization um, and human rights, this should, I would assume, be at the forefront of the thinking. Now, Rosa, I think it's a great point that we shouldn't rely on the military to do everything. But if I can kind of stay with David's um, analogy for a second, you know, yes, we in America, for example, rely on the police to to solve social problems that probably there shouldn't be doing in the first place. But it's only a very small group of people who I think would want all police forces in the United States to be abolished. We, We want to have that capability there, even if they are not, you know, doing domestic violence counseling on the spot. I'm sorry if that's a very tortured kind of comparison, but, you know, and I, I I don't. That's precisely the tortured comparison I was trying to get. (laughs) I am not at all saying that American troops should sit in Afghanistan and, you know, just die or, you know, wither away inside the wire without having something to do. I am saying that there's a fair amount of data that suggests that and empirical evidence as well that suggests that when you do have troops on the ground, it serves as kind of an insurance force uh, that lets, you know, the bad guys know, hey, we are here and we have the ability to stop you quickly if you stray outside of the, the lines. I think that's absolutely right. But as usual, I mean, I guess the question is, what's the limiting principle? Um, I mean, we could hypothetically put 20,000 troops everywhere. Um, and we don't because we have decided that it's not practical. It's too expensive there. We can't we can't be you know, we can't be the the global police policemen, as they say. And, and I, I so I think the question for Afghanistan is just should we be the Afghanistan policemen? Um, and, and if so, for what purpose? Solely for the purpose of protecting ourselves, or should we also be the, you know, to use the domestic, to further torment the analogy, to use the domestic violence analogy, you know, should we, should we be just trying to keep the violence in Afghanistan from, you know, affecting the neighbors, or are we also trying to protect the domestic violence victim within? And is that, is that feasible? And I know, I, I, I mean, I think it's actually a really, I think it's a hard call. Um, 
but I also think that after, you know, after 20 years um, and a whole lot of money and, and a fair number of U.S. lives lost and, you know, open question. I, I, I mean, I don't, I, here's, I don't know the, I don't know how one would possibly evaluate this, but um, on the one hand, do I think the Taliban will, will regain even more power and control and make more people's lives miserable without us? Yes. On the other hand, um, you know, how many Afghan civilians have died in the last 20 years in a war that was prolonged in part because we were there, but only kind of sort of there? You know, I, I think that this is one of the, you know, the ethical questions in, in just war theory is, is always, you know, not only do you have good goals, but do you, do you have just goals, just ends, but do you have the capacity to achieve your, your ends um, versus making things worse versus just keeping things in a condition of stasis? And I, you know, my, I, I think that it's a, it's a, it's a very closely balanced one in Afghanistan, but I think I'm inclined to share Biden's view that um, all things considered after 20 years, we've made it clear that we don't have the capacity to make things sufficiently better for anybody, that it makes sense for us to stay there given the costs to us and to others. So I'm going to give you the last word on this before we, like Biden, turn the page on Afghanistan here, Corey. Um, and, uh, you know, I will... Uh, I'll frame it this way, which will probably inflame you. But um, one of the things that I thought about as I saw thought of this was that the uh, Powell Doctrine lasted 10 years because, you know, the, the idea that we go into a place, that we have a clear goal, that we use overwhelming force, and that we have a clear exit strategy didn't survive into Afghanistan. Um, we didn't We didn't seem to have any of those things. And that, you know, led to the outcome that was predicted. Um, I, I, we've discussed, you know, the sort of fatuousness of the use of the Powell Doctrine in the past, but wh what do you think the, the verdict is going to be on this in retrospect? I think both Iraq and Afghanistan will be addenda chapters to the 1958 novel, The Ugly American which is a terrible novel, but a genuinely great book about the making of American foreign policy. Uh, and it's, it's the rerun, it's the, it's the prequel to the Vietnam War, right? Watching uh, very ambitious aims be unmatched with the resources to attain them, coupled with way too much confidence you understand another society and how to foment change. And uh, in general, us choosing policies suited to how we like to do stuff instead of the needs of the society itself um, with a entirely predictable, unsuccessful outcome. I do agree with what I think your intimation is in how you framed the question, David, which is that we are likely to have uh, a long uh, hangover from, the, from our failures in Afghanistan, which will make us much more reticent than we ought to, that we can affect any positive change anywhere. And so we are going to look squarely at uh, terrible depredations and do nothing. 
So we're back to 1990, where James Baker says the U.S. has no dog in the fight in the wars of succession in Afghanistan. And uh, we stand idly by while an enormous amount of harm that would have been preventable occurs. This is the second straight week in which Corey has turned our attention to hangovers. Um, last week with the curse of the 400 rabbits, which is a whole. Uh, <laughs> Thank goodness for Aztec culture. What will we do without that? No, absolutely, absolutely right. Um, ha having said that, let us turn the page here. Another big thing that happened last week or set of things had to do with Russia. There was um, a series of sanctions uh, 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 imposed, uh, revealed, uh, that uh, associated with actions that the Russians had taken prior to this administration. Uh, that included a revelation about how certain campaign information had flowed from Paul Manafort through Konstantin Kalimnik to, uh, who was a Russian intelligence agent, to Russian intelligence in Moscow, which was a bit of a, uh, as, as Ryan Goodman put it on our, our Thursday podcast last week, very colludy. Um, it was a very colludy <laughs> revelation. Um, uh, but I, I, that's not really, if you want to talk about it, feel free, but that's not really where I want to take this. Uh, and I'll go first to Larry here. Um, uh, the, almost immediately upon the announcement of the sanctions and about the talk of a, a recent conversation between Biden and, and, and Putin, the people were saying, well, what about Navalny? And why isn't Navalny mentioned here? And of course, in the past couple of days, there've been some very dire reports on the health of Navalny, who has subsequently been moved to a, a prison infirmary, I believe. Uh, but there are some reports uh, saying that he is on the edge of death. Um, do you think, Lara, that the administration is downplaying Navalny because they want to have a summit, has made a mistake in downplaying it? Yesterday in the Sunday shows uh, Jake Sullivan did make some statements saying there would be consequences, uh, but it was not ex very specific. So what do you think? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I see today that the EU leaders also did not put sanctions on uh, Russia um, connected to its meddling in, or its military buildup on the Ukrainian border and uh, Navalny. Uh, the analysis out of Brussels is that um, France and Germany want to have more bilateral or at least diplomatic conversations with Russia, not go the sanctions route, not go the punitive route at this time over those two issues. And so, yeah, I, it, it's a fair assumption to think that that's what um, the Biden administration is doing as well. Well, I'm going to go back to the rotation I was using um, before. Uh, Corey, do you, what, what do you think of this? And one thing that, you know, again, sort of floated around in the back of my mind when I heard this is that this administration probably thinks they need Russia to get to wherever they want to go with Iran. And they may be soft peddling it for that reason. What do you think? I don't actually think they're soft peddling it. Um, I'm less critical of the administration on Russia policy than on many other things, because uh, I thought the Putin-Biden phone call and dangling the possibility for a summit, as distasteful as it was, 
um, may well have prevented Russian military action in Ukraine. And distasteful as it was, that's a price worth paying. Uh, and so it looks to me like um, what Russia is trying to do is to remain in the great power competition game instead of in the pathetic former superpower that is barely able to affect um, other states on its borders, political calculations. Uh, remember Russia actually hasn't won in Ukraine these last six years. Ukrainians with very modest help from outside have held their own pretty doggone well. Um, and if you look at the way uh, other governments in the region, like the dictator of Belarus, have played Russia's hesitance to full on invade their countries, have played that to advantage. Um, it looks to me like Putin's trying to look important by looking dangerous and uh, giving them, giving Putin uh, stature in return for substantive agreements strikes me as not a bad deal to make. And it looks like, I mean, Jake Sullivan, I don't think they are downplaying the Navalny thing. Uh, it sounds like Jake Sullivan and others have been telling the Russian leadership there will be consequences if Navalny dies in prison. And, and I'm not sure shoving it in their face publicly is the best way to protect Alexei Navalny. On the, on the other side of this, Rosa, um, something that hasn't happened in the past four years but happened around this, and that is that the uh, administration actually talked to our allies before doing it. Uh, you had the polls announcing uh, some sanctions. Subsequently, um, uh, it, you know, there were some supportive statements from elsewhere. We, we also saw, and I, I guess an unrelated development, uh, a, a Czech reaction to some, what Russians had done there, blowing up something a few years ago. Seven but years it, ago, right? I mean, that's the striking thing about that case is that they are now um, you know, expelling diplomats for uh, an explosion that happened in 2014. Right, right. But 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 having said that, that there does seem to be some diplomacy going on here, Rosa, in and around this, which does, I guess, amplify our leverage. Do, are you, do you take some encouragement from that? Uh, I, I believe the correct answer is yes, David, I do. <laughs> but but um, yes, of course. I mean, uh, you know, and, and this is in so many ways, obviously, this administration has taken pains to set a very different tone than the Trump administration. Um, including by uh, act, treating our allies as if they in fact matter to us, which they do. Um, the only thing I, I think thought was worth adding to what Corey said though, um, going back to our early discussion about the, the new intelligence threat assessment, um, I was interested and, and sort of relieved to see that the, the community, intel community did not actually assess Putin and Russia as likely to try to do something that could up the ante and, and trigger a conflict um, that, that it actually, they seem to frame Putin as exactly as Corey said, you know, desirous of recognition, but 
fearful of doing something that could escalate out of control into a conflict. And if that's the case, I mean, I've, I've, I've always been a little bit more nervous and about Russia and, and feared that Putin having let, let lose might be reckless. Um, the intelligence assessment seems to suggest that they don't think that's the case. Um, and, and if they're right and I'm wrong, and I, I certainly hope they're right, and there's every reason to believe that they're more likely to be right than I am since they have access to all kinds of information I don't see. And if they're right and I'm wrong, then I think Corey's, and Corey's analysis is also absolutely right, that distasteful as it is, um, if we can take steps that keep Putin from losing it and feeling like uh, his his keeping his keeping internal respect and control require him to behave even more provocatively with the U.S., then then I think I'm all for it. So we've only got three or four minutes here. So I'm going to ask each one of you a question, which will only take you a minute to answer. It's never true, but I'm going to try it. Um, uh, Laura, this is kind of tangentially on the diplomatic beat. The, in, the, in the past few days, um, uh, IG report has come out on Secretary Pompeo's uh, and his wife's uh, uh, abuse of the privilege of being Secretary of State. Uh, you've written about this. Do you think there are going to be consequences for Pompeo as a result of all this? No, I don't. Um, I think that uh, the IG report said that there were no consequences that uh, they could, or no actions that the government could take against him since he was no longer in office. And I don't think he plays in, or I don't think he suffers any political consequences. I think that he tries to make this out as a political witch hunt. I mean, his statement last Friday pretty much said that this was a politically motivated probe. And uh, I think the people he is hoping will, who will vote for him for either governor next year or president in 2024 will eat that right up. Well, at least we can take some comfort that he doesn't have people to do his, get his dry clean for him anymore. So that, you know. That's a step step in the right direction. Corey, last week, the prime minister of Japan came to the United States for the first bilateral meeting of that uh, sort that, that has happened during the Biden administration, COVID era. Um, and I, I watched the press conference and it was real boring. It was just like what you'd expect a press, con you know, they were like making statements. There was a communique. They said, nice things about each other. They deferred to each other. Um, I, I found that boringness kind of good. You know, that, uh, this reminds me of its ancient Chinese blessing. May you live in boring times. Um, uh, what, what, what do you think? I do. First of all, I thought it was wonderful that the prime minister of Japan was the first foreign leader invited to the White House. That's a nice a fingerprint of how important the US-Japanese relationship is, especially if you think your top national security concern is the rise of China. I also thought it was wonderful that they had a big substantive um, policy to put forward, which is the, the joint commitment to investments in 5G and beyond because the Trump administration had been complaining so loudly about countries uh, buying Huawei 5G equipment, but uh, you can't beat something with nothing. And so I love that the governments of the US and Japan 
are investing it together to think about how do we create alternatives to a Chinese future we're concerned about. And I also, I just loved, it was boring, it was collegial, there was a whole bunch of staff work done in advance of it, so you could get substantive agreements. You're right, I'm, I'm so grateful for the return of boring competence in American national security policy. Yeah, no, no, no doubt about that. One last point on, on all of that, Rosa, over the course of the past three months, one of the things we've talked about was the commitment of this administration to bring in diverse people. We talk a lot about that when we talk about the cabinet, which is the most diverse and, and has gender balance. But over the course of you know the past month, and you know we're sort of at that time in the administration where assistant secretaries are getting appointed and and other people down a down a notch or two, and it looks to me like they're continuing to maintain this commitment that there's a lot of high quality people in there. Um, and this represents a sort of a continuation of the conversation that we had had on that. And I was wondering if you wanted to offer any comments on, on the fact that, it, you know, we do seem to be having gender diversity and other forms of diversity all the way down in this administration. Well, so um, I'd give, I'd give them slightly mixed reviews because all the way down is kind of, those are the key words. Um, when you look at the appointments of women and people of color, um, they're mostly concentrated at least a little bit of the way down. Um, and at the very tippy top uh, positions, the um, are still disproportionately male in particular and also white. Um, so, you know, they could have done a little better. That being said, um, they've done pretty well. And, you know, obviously the, the Trump administration set an extremely low bar. Um, they have easily surpassed that. And in fact, I think this is, this is thus far a far more diverse set of senior appointments than the Obama administration made uh, as well. So, so, so better than anybody has done in the past, not quite as well as they could be doing. Um, you know, obviously we saw some terrific appointments um, at DOD, um, we were disappointed that we didn't get a woman in, in the secretary of defense position, um, but it's obviously important to have the first African-American man in that position. We saw Kath Hicks uh, as deputy secretary of defense, uh, Christine Warmoth just nominated as secretary of the army in the last few days. Um, and I'm also heartened to see our friend of deep state radio, Gina Abercrombie Win Stanley, appointed to be the sort of essentially the diversity, equity, and inclusion czar at the State Department. Um, Gina, as anyone who has worked with her inside or outside government knows, is one tough cookie, and she is not going to let people get away with shit. Um, Gina is not somebody who, in the interests of just being nice and smoothing things over, will be polite when people are, are not doing what they should be doing. She will hold their feet to the fire, um, and that is a really good thing. So, so yeah. Uh, I'm not going to give them an A plus, um, but definitely at least a B plus, um, and overall pretty happy about this. Well, that's certainly a, a, a step in the right direction, and of course we hope it continues. Uh, we also hope to be able to continue the conversation with each one of you. This has been great, extremely um, illuminating. Uh, for those of you out there listening, uh, do go to the DSR network. Uh, uh, com to see what we've got in store coming up in interactive sessions and others. Uh, we're going to do one with our regular Monday friend, Ed Luce, um, and some economic folks a little bit later in the week. 
um, uh, to have an economically uh, uh, focused podcast. Is uh, so go to go to go to the website and see what you can see there. And if you like, go and click on membership and become a membership. We've had a big surge in membership recently, and we're delighted to see that, and we'd like it to continue. Um, and uh, in the interim, please uh, join me in thanking. Laura Jakes for joining us for the first time. We hope that you will come back sometime soon, Laura. And of course, Corey and Rosa, we'll see you again next week. As always, thank you very, very much. Uh, and stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks, David.